All right. Well, it's funny, uh, just a second ago, Winston uh, says, just imagine whatever you have on your heart, whatever's on your, in your life right now, whatever you're dealing with, imagine going through that without Jesus and without your hope in him. And I'm sitting back there thinking about coming up here and talking to you guys. So, so uh, yeah, that would be really bad without Jesus. And uh, so I'm going to count on him to get me through this. Um, so I am, uh, I am from Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, the home of the Cleveland Indians, who just uh, just today won their eighth straight game and uh, clinched a tie for the wild card, so which is kind of cool. It's uh, we're set up for another heartbreak, which is good. So if you're from Cleveland, you know anything about Cleveland sports, we're we're right where we normally are. So you know. So uh, also, what you may not know about Cleveland is uh, Cleveland is in the Eastern Standard Time Zone. So it's past my bedtime right now, and I'm really tired. So if I um, start to slur my words or look like I'm going to nod off, just throw something at me or scream out. That would be good. I'd appreciate that. Uh, so <clears throat> I'm certainly happy to be here uh, in Arizona. I am. Uh, uh, I'm not necessarily happy to be here. I'm, I'm actually used to sitting out there at retreats like this. So I. I remember when um, when Trevor first asked me to come out to speak, uh, literally within a week or two after I said that I would come out, uh, a verse popped into my head. And, and that verse, uh, honestly, this is not even a joke, this is true. The verse that popped into my head was 1 Corinthians 2, 3. It says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Yeah, that's, there's some great stuff before that passage and then right after it, but the only part that really applies to me right now is that verse. So... I got that going for me, which is nice. So, uh, you know, Kevin, your talk was very helpful yesterday uh, because I, I, I learned that I need to endure an unpleasant circumstance without showing fear. So that is my intention. Got that going. So that's excellent. Um, in all honesty, I'm um, I'm here to talk about something that I'm very passionate about. Uh, early years of being a Christian, I was very confused about this topic. Uh, and God gave me some clarity, so I'm looking forward to passing that on to you. I've been a Christian for 14 years, and during that time I've been, uh, had the pleasure of attending a number of these types of retreats. And uh, um, I remember the first couple times coming to retreats like this and going home all fired up, because I, I finally figured out what God wanted me to do. You know, God had this, this, this mission for me. It was awesome. Only to go home and get around a bunch of other Christians who were telling me all these other things that I was supposed to be doing. You know, so, uh, you know, the, the arenas in which I needed to be investing, the, the duties that I have as a Christian and as an American. And, and I, I tried to kind of weigh the two and it, it was very confusing, really. And, uh, the, the, the methods were very different. The motive almost seemed different. The purpose seemed different. So, um, I thought to myself, now I'm a Christian. Now I belong to Him. Now what? You know, what am I supposed to do? Who do I listen to in terms of defining this mission that God has for me? And so uh, that's what I'm going to talk about uh, tonight. Um, so we're going to spend some time talking briefly about who we are in Christ, who Christ is and who we are in Christ, and then where we look uh, for direction on what God would have us do. And then, you know, my goal for tonight is that each of us would walk away with a very clear definition of what the mission is for us. So uh, with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for us, uh, and we'll get started. Dear God, uh, thank you for 
being sovereign. Thank you for being completely in control of every aspect of our lives. Lord, uh, thank you for being so very good in every detail, every circumstance that you bring to us. Lord, I pray for the men that you've brought here to this retreat. It's been a long couple days. uh, Looking at their faces, they look like they're tired and kind of beat down. And Lord, I, I pray that you would continue to work tonight. You would grow them in their faith and in their knowledge of you. And Lord, I know the only way that possibly can happen is if you come and teach. So would you do that? Would you come and teach these men? And would you protect them from me? I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So before we get started, I I, I need a a frame of reference, kind of a starting point, a launching pad, if you will. And so um, I'm going to touch on a concept that has been talked about a little bit uh, over the past uh, couple days here. Uh, But I need need to start there. I'm not going to delve in real deep, but I want to talk about it real quickly. So 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, But you are a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Revelation 1.6, John says something similar. He says, And he's made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now Paul uh, says something similar as well. He's talking to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5. And he uses a different word. Uh, He doesn't use the word priest, he uses the word ambassador. Uh, I would submit to you that the reason he changes the word is because the people he's writing to don't have a background in the Levitical priesthood. So it's a bit out of context for them. So he'll use the word ambassador, but he kind of means the same thing. uh, Where he says, therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Uh, As was discussed just a few minutes ago, hopefully you haven't forgotten, uh, we are called uh, to be priests. Every individual believer is called to be a priest or an ambassador to God. Not just the pastor, not just the vocational Christian worker, not just those that are spiritually gifted in certain areas, uh, but every individual is called as a priest. Uh, A simple definition for the job of a priest or an ambassador is to do two things. He is to talk to God about men. He is to talk to men about God. That's the simple definition of what a priest is called to do. And so uh, we have a mission, we have a ministry as priests of God. And so, a mini little application is for you to ask yourself this question. Have you embraced this God-given role in your own life? If not, I would, I would ask you to consider, to chew on this concept. What does it look like to be a priest? And have I, have I embraced this as part of my life? So, that is our launching pad, a starting point. So, let me go on from there. Acts 9. Saul of Tarsus uh, is under the impression that the program of God, the mission that God has for him, is to do everything in his power to extinguish Christianity. Uh, so he, he is doing just that. He is on the road to Damascus. He's armed with letters from the chief priests uh, with the intent of silencing every Christian he can silence. 
Uh, and it's at this point when he has this dramatic introduction to Jesus Christ. So dramatic that he's knocked to the ground, uh, he is blinded, and he hears God speaking to him from heaven audibly, which is a pretty dramatic experience for sure. Saul uh, asks two questions, and I would suggest that these two questions are very important questions, but equally important is the order in which he asks the question. So the first question he asks is, who are you, Lord? Who are you, Lord? That question is very important because who God is defines who we are. He's the creator of everyone and everything. And so who he is defines who we are and what our purpose is. So that's the first question he asks. The second question he asks is, what do you want me to do? <laughs> that question speaks to activities. What, what are the things that you want me to accomplish? The reason I bring these up to you is um, I think a lot of Christians, um, at least I'll speak for myself. So early on in my Christian walk, it didn't take long before people came to me with opportunities uh, to serve God. Uh, I got bombarded with, you know, do this, do this, do this. You know, God would have you do this. And um, I think a lot of people, myself included, evaluated where I would invest my time, what I would take on what I would give my life away to based on what I was most passionate about, where my interests lied, where I thought I was, uh, had time, what my time commitments would be. Um, not to say that those aren't important things to consider as you're making a decision as to where you're going to invest your time, but um, never did I think to myself, what exactly is God's mission for me? What is, what is the, the purpose that he has for me, and how does this line up with that purpose and therefore make my decision from that perspective? And so... Um, one of the dangers of kind of going right to activities in terms of what you make your decision based upon is, is you can do all this great stuff for God. And, and I remember Gail Jackson one time saying that, uh, how, how scary would it be to get to heaven and have God come out to you and say, hey, Todd, you know, you worked really hard. I mean, your life, you've really put a lot into it. I have your report card right here. You, you, you got great grades. Unfortunately, they're all the wrong the wrong courses. This is not what I asked you to do at all, but you worked hard for sure. You know, I mean, that's a scary thought. And so um, the hope is that we would uh, consider, and there's been a lot of talk about purpose and how important uh, starting with purpose and then working from there. And so that's kind of where we're going, what we're going to talk about. So um, I would, I would um, suggest that you would resist the temptation to go directly to activities in terms of your decisions. Uh, what ends up happening a lot of times is you think about yourself as a priest and you get overwhelmed with your perception of the responsibilities of priesthood, thinking that you're not equipped, you're not uh, able to do it, you're not far enough in your Christian walk to be involved in the life of another man and impacting him for Christ. And um, you, know, you, you may call it humility, you may call it a lot of different things, but what it comes down to is um, you're afraid. You're afraid that you're not equipped and you can't handle it, so you'd rather just kind of be the guy that passes out the, you know, the bulletins in the back of the church and then you're serving God. So um, I would suggest to you uh, to think about this. God does not always equip the called, but he, excuse me, take that back. God does not always call the equipped, but he always equips the called, as long as you're willing to be obedient. So, um, so let's talk a little bit about who God is and who we are. Psalm 34.22 says, The Lord redeems the soul of his servants. 
and none who take refuge in him will be condemned. So the Lord is the redeemer of souls. And if your soul has been redeemed, then you are his servant. I know it's not, it's not, not too complicated. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and so the word for, the Hebrew word for redeemed is the word pada. Pada means ransomed, rescued, loosed, or delivered. And the Hebrew word that's translated servant in this passage uh, is the word evid, and it means slave or bondservant. So the redeemed, uh, the soul, the, those whose souls have been redeemed, are slaves or bondservants of God, as we've mentioned before. Paul talks about this a little bit as well, as far as who we are in God. But then he also talks about what took place when we were redeemed. So in Romans 6, starting at verse 20, he says this. Let's see if we can, can't get an idea if, uh, from this passage what actually transpired when we were redeemed. So Romans 6, 20 says, When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. But now you've been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. The Greek word in this passage that's translated slave is the word doulos. And the word means slave, bondman, or man of servile condition. Now, uh, I have to make a confession. I'm the guy that when I look up the definition of a Greek word, I have to keep an English dictionary on hand to look up those words because I don't know what those words mean. So I looked up the word servile, and servile means slavishly submissive or obsequious. Obsequious. Don't you hate it when you don't know the meaning of the word and the definition of the word that you didn't know to begin with? So I went ahead and looked up the word, uh, the definition for the word obsequious, which means compliant, deferential, obedient, and dutiful. In the scriptures, doulos means one who gives himself up to another's will, or one who is devoted to another to the disregard of his own interests. So this passage says you went from being slaves of sin to being slaves of God. Still slaves, just change masters, right? So we have uh, been freed from the bondage to sin and have become enslaved to God. So now the question is, what do slaves do? What's a slave's job? Obviously, they are to do what their master commands them to do. And this verse was mentioned earlier uh, today, but um, in Luke 17, Jesus talks a little bit about slaves and kind of what the, what the deal is with slaves. So Luke 17, starting at verse 7, Jesus says this. He says, Which of you, having a slave plowing or tending ship, sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come immediately and sit down to eat? But will you not say to him, prepare something for me to eat, and properly clothe yourselves and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you may eat and drink? He does not thank the slave because he did all the things which were commanded, does he? So you too, when you've done all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Slaves are to do what their masters command them to do. So we as slaves of God are to do what we're commanded by the way, we're also unworthy slaves. We are the products of grace. And grace, as was mentioned earlier, is defined as unmerited favor. Or maybe another definition might be one who receives the good he does not deserve. Jerry uh, made a comment earlier today. He said that we are to find out what God wants and do it. So I'd like you to ask yourself this question. Am, 
Am I willing to find out what God wants? And then once I find that out, will I do it? That will likely take a lot of work on your, time, on your part. Um, he also said, everything worth doing takes time. And so um, I will tell you, there's no shortage of voices uh, trying to help you cut corners and maybe shortcut your way to what God would have you do. They'll just come out and tell you, this is what God has for you. This is what God wants you to do. But you need to find that out for yourself. You need to dig in there and, and do it. Um, I'll give you an example. In the past probably four weeks, I literally have been asked to do a whole slew of things for God. Um, I, I was asked um, probably two weeks ago if I would lead a, a small group of families in our church in, in Bible study and fellowship on Sunday nights beginning in the fall. And then about a week later, another guy asked me if I would teach a, a Bible study of third through fifth grade boys on Wednesday nights uh, for the whole school year beginning in the fall. About three weeks uh, before that, I was asked if I would sponsor a table at a fundraiser for a Christian political lobbying organization and then recruit all my Christian friends to come along with me and give their money to the, to the organization. Mm. Last week, I was asked uh, if I would lead a group of junior high boys in Bible study and fellowship uh, on Sunday nights beginning in the fall. Um, then I was asked uh, to meet with some business leaders who would um, teach me how to put my business influence to work to take dominion for God for our cult, over our culture. And then uh, last week, again, I, another guy came to me and asked me if I would be the guy that passes out the bulletins in the back of the church and points people to the bathroom. So I'm not saying anything about any of those things, except that I don't think it's God's will that I would do all of them. I physically cannot do all of them, but... Uh, the question is, where do, I, where do I go to find out what God would have me do? And how do I evaluate this in my life? And so, um, you know, the Bible says in 1 John 4, 1, that we're to test the spirits to see whether they are from God. And, of course, the Bereans are, are commended in Acts 17 uh, for being noble-minded in that they studied the scriptures every day to see if what they were hearing was true. And so, clearly, we are to go to the Bible. We are, the, the final authority for a Christian is the Bible. It is the highest level of authority in your life. And so what I want to do um, is I want to talk about the Bible for a few minutes, make some observations. Uh, by the way, um, remember I'm trying to endure an unpleasant circumstance, so uh, I may not stop for uh, questions. So if you guys have questions, you're going to need to stop me and raise your hands. So I'll do my best to remember to stop, but once I get going, I just kind of chug a lug right on through. So um, if you have questions, please raise your hand and I'll get to it. Um, so, so let's talk about the Bible. So as you know, the Bible is a compilation of 66 books written by between 39 and 40 authors, depending on where you come down on the author of Hebrews. It was written over a period of 1,600 years, uh, written on three continents, written uh, in three main languages, and uh, it has two main sections. The first section being the Old Testament, which comprises two-thirds of the Bible, and then the second half, which essentially is the New Testament. Uh, one of the things that you notice as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God relates to his people in different ways. Um, so the commands that he gives, a little bit different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The promises that he gives, a little, little bit different from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Uh, clearly, God is the same God. You know, God does not change. And the theme of the Bible throughout is the same. You know, God's redemptive plan for his people uh, through Jesus Christ. That's, that's the theme of the Bible. But 
there's no doubt that he is distinctive in the way he relates to his people. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to uh, make some observations about the Bible and uh, kind of walk through some contrasts of some things I've noticed uh, as we take a look at the Bible. So the first one is, in the Old Testament, God has what I would call a dual commitment. What I mean by that is God is committed uh, to individuals, but he's also committed to the nation of Israel. Uh, It is a separate commitment on the part of God. God established the nation of Israel and gave it a set of laws, which uh, included moral, civil, ceremonial, and dietary aspects of their lives. God established a priesthood, which in effect is the judiciary arm of the nation. Um, God also is committed to individuals in the Old Testament. However, just because you are a a individual that's in the nation of Israel, it does not guarantee your salvation. Um, Paul says in Romans 9, 6, that not all Israel is Israel. Uh, So uh, regardless of that, um, God's still committed to the nation of Israel, uh, regardless of who in the nation of Israel is committed to him. So he introduces a dual commitment. In the New Testament, God does not introduce a dual commitment. I want to be careful in how I say this to make sure you understand. So in the New Testament, the, the commitment to Israel is not nullified. So to some degree, there is a dual commitment still in the New Testament. But what I'm suggesting is God does not introduce a new institutional commitment. But he does introduce a, a commitment to individuals again. So I would call that a singular commitment, no new institutional commitment. And again, he's not nullifying the commitment to Israel. Okay? And there we go. In the Old Testament, Israel is a people gathered. Uh, actually, ironically, it's gathered and then gathered again and then gathered again. You know, after the, he has to move them around a little bit as he disciplines his people. Uh, in the New Testament, the body of Christ is a people scattered. In the Old Testament, Abraham and his descendants are the primary objects of God's affection. Now, this does not exclude others, but it is through Abraham and his descendants that God demonstrates to a watching world what it meant to be a people ruled by God. All the other nations are invited to look on and be instructed. Um, In the New Testament, the Gentiles are the primary objects of God's affection. Again, not excluding the Jews, but that's who who they're talking about. Do you have a question? No? Stretching? Excellent. Fantastic. Good to know. All right. Um, So Gentiles are the primary objects of God's affection. They are aliens, and they are um, strangers in a hostile environment. Uh, in, they're called to be salt and light in the midst of persecution and rejection. Incidentally, they're not called to gather themselves together to form a unique nation under God. Instead, they are actually called to uh, go into the uttermost parts of the earth and preach the gospel. They're also not called to change the government in the New Testament, but rather to submit to it. Romans 13, 1-5 and 2 Peter 2, 13-15 are cross-references there that you may want to take a look at. Next observation. In the Old Testament, the call was to a society complying with the commands of God rather than individual salvation. Now, there is individual salvation in the Old Testament. However, the focus of Moses and the prophets is to a society living in accordance with the laws of God. In the New Testament, the call is to individual salvation rather than corporate change. There are no references in the New Testament to the changing of society, only to the changing of individuals. 
Everybody is so quiet. All right, good stuff. <clears throat> in the Old Testament, most of the promises are temporal in focus. They focus on things like secure borders, the absence of famine, the absence of pestilence, the absence of want, uh, the promise of a long life, health, uh, prosperity. Those are the things that are promised primarily in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, most of the promises are eternal in focus. Um, Things like eternal life, the rewards of heaven, the promise of God's presence in a believer's life. The New Testament believer is promised tribulation, persecution, and rejection as a product of godliness. Cross-reference there is 2 Timothy 3.12. You can see the contrast. It's different, very different. Any questions so far? Take that as a no. We will continue on. All right. Old Testament, Israel is an organization. The New Testament, the body of Christ, is an organism. In the Old Testament, the mission is corporate. In the New Testament, the mission is individual. In the Old Testament, prior to the law, the priesthood was individual. Each individual was their own priest. At Mount Sinai, when God gave uh, the Mosaic Law, uh, he confined the priesthood to a select few from the tribe of Levi. In the New Testament, every believer is a priest of God, as we mentioned before. In the Old Testament, perpetuity of offspring is important. In the New Testament, not getting married is important. 1 Corinthians 7, 7-9. And then finally, in the Old Testament... Wealth is a sign of God's blessing. In the New Testament, wealth is neutral. In fact, it talks about more accountability being given to you the more that you have. So I make these observations to kind of come to a point, and that is that God's program, the program of God for the Old Testament age, which I would define the Old Testament age from creation to Christ's first advent, God's program for the Old Testament age is very different from God, for God's program in the New Testament age. I would define the New Testament age, God's first advent, to, God's, uh, to Jesus' second advent. So, uh, God's program for the Old Testament age is very different from God's program for the New Testament age. And hence, the mission for his people in each age is also different. I'm going to stop there and see if anybody has questions on anything that we've covered. Go ahead, question. Hey, Todd, what was the uh, reference for every believer as a priest of God, please? Yeah, so that was um, 1 Peter 2, it's actually 5 and 9, and then also uh, Revelations 1, 6. And then if you want to hop over to 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21, those are the, the three, three that I would send you to, to take a look at that. Okay? Anything else? Okay, so it's First uh, Peter two five and nine, and then Revelation one six, and then Second Corinthians five twenty through twenty one. This is the passage that Paul talks about ambassadorship. Thank you. Sure, for sure. Okay, so we've talked about some of the contrasts uh, from Old Testament to New Testament. So I wanted I want to um, 
I want to talk about some of the, the concepts that unite both Testaments. Uh, and, and the first one I want to share is uh, this principle. And the principle is this. We exist for God to live out his purpose. God does not exist for us. Pretty straightforward. In Isaiah 43, God is speaking to his people, and he's telling them all these things he's done for them, and how he feels about them, that they're precious and they're honored in his sight. And, and then he gives them these like crazy, awesome promises. You know, and in the midst of, of this amazing speech and this wonderful you know, overview he gives on who he is and who they are and how much he loves them and what he's doing for them, there's this cool little verse and it's not even a sentence, it's like a clause, it's like a part of a sentence. And, and it's, it's Isaiah 43, 7. He says, everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, and he goes on to say what he's going to do for them. So I, in that little, that little verse, it says, whom I created for my glory. That is cool. We just found out why God made us. He made us for his glory. We exist for God uh, to live out his purpose. And part of his purpose is to give him glory. To give glory means to give the correct opinion of who God is, is to the world. And so, um, as I mentioned before, purpose is very important. And the definition of who God is defines our purpose. And so I want to spend some time talking about uh, God's purpose for us. And um, incidentally, knowing that if you fulfill God's purpose, you actually are bringing him glory, which is the reason that he made you. So... Um, I think yesterday, Kevin may have mentioned this little booklet, um, Establishing Your Purpose. Uh, if you get the chance, grab it. Uh, it's been talked about quite a bit. Uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, a, uh, a teaser. Um, so it talks through uh, kind of God's purpose for us and in three different ways. The first thing it talks about is God's ultimate purpose. God's ultimate purpose is something that he is doing and the reason he made everything, and it's all kind of working its way out. And part of that's a, a bit of a mystery. We're not sure how it's all going to turn out completely because he doesn't give every detail. Um, but it talks about in Romans that the creation is groaning, waiting for, for God to just finish this, this ultimate purpose that he's working out. And then it talks about universal purpose, the purpose for every one of God's people. And then it talks a little bit about unique purpose. I want to talk about the universal purpose for just for a minute or two. Uh, then we can, uh, I will get to the unique purpose. I'll let you pick up the book and do the study yourself to kind of get to that. So the, unique, the universal purpose of God, uh, there are four main points there. First point is to know God. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he knows and understands me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight, declares the Lord. That is what we should be striving for, to know God. Okay? That's all i got to say about that. So, second point, <clears throat> as far as uh, the purpose of God, uh, universal purpose, that is. Uh, and that is to become Christ-like. So, um, everyone loves to quote this verse, Romans 8, 28. Uh, but, so it says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God's purpose. He's purpose-driven, obviously. 
Verse 29, it says, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. God's second universal purpose is that we would become Christ-like. Okay? Third one, that we would understand the program of God. In Psalm 103, verse 7, God says that he made known his ways to Moses, but his deeds to the people of Israel. God disclosed not just what he did uh, to Moses, but his ways, his program, what he was all about, what he was, what he was accomplishing, what he was looking to do, his mission uh, to Moses. And I believe that uh, as, a, as a Christian, um, it is our purpose to find out what the program of God is and get after it, which is kind of what we're talking about. And then finally, to participate in the program of God once you understand what that program looks like. So clearly, we exist for God to live out his purpose. I'm going to talk just for a real quick second about how God feels about his purpose. What, what does God say about purpose? Why is it important to him? You know? So in Isaiah 46, verses 9 to 10, God talks about purpose. He says this. He says, Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning and from ancient times what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God purposed to set Israel apart as his chosen nation. God purposed to build his church. Jesus told Peter in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So make no mistake, God's program in both Testaments is about God doing stuff, not us doing stuff. So... uh, the second principle based on that concept is, is this. The mission or the ministry of what God's called his bond slaves to do must be defined as participating with God in what he is doing today. Let me say that one more time. The mission or ministry of what God has called his bond slaves to do must be defined as participating with God in what he is doing today. Acts 13.36 says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Scripture states that David served God's purpose in his own generation. He lived out the ministry by participating in God's program during the time that God gave him on earth. And so must we. It is our hope that we would be like the men of Issachar, 1 Chronicles 12, 32. The men of Issachar were understanding of their times, and they knew what they should do. Questions? Concerns? Thoughts? Dusty? The verse? Uh, 1 Chronicles 12, 32? Sure. Anybody else? Golf just beat the living snot out of you guys, huh? Uh, it was Acts 13.36, I think. Uh, Isaiah 46, 9 to 10. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's, yeah, I didn't give the actual uh, verse reference, but in Matthew 16, 
Jesus is talking to Peter, and he says, um, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. On this rock I will build my church, is what he says. Um, so that's that passage. So I have been accused of talking fast from time to time. So I, I, I think it's a rumor. I don't think it's true. Uh, but uh, I just want to throw that out there as a disclaimer. So um, most of the questions are, can you repeat what you just said? So clearly I'm, I'm going a little too fast. So let's move on. Um, principle three that I wanted to share, and that is to look to the Old Testament for a proper model of the ministry is to do what no one in the, in the New Testament did or taught believers to do. Let me say that again. To look to the Old Testament for the proper model of the ministry that we are called to is to do what no one in the New Testament did or taught other believers to do. Interesting. If you guys wouldn't mind turning in your Bibles to 1 John, I want to go through three passages that kind of illustrate uh, that principle, <clears throat> if I may. So 1 John... One, one to three. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. That's the first passage. Second one. 1 John 2.7. So flip over to another page over, perhaps, to 1 John 2.7. Here it says, Beloved, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment was the word which you have heard. Finally, the last passage I want to read uh, is 1 John 4, 6. So probably two pages over in your Bibles. 1 John 4, 6 says, We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And so my question to you is this. Throughout the passage, you hear this we and this us and this who are they talking about as the we and us? Out of curiosity, any thoughts on who the we and the us is in these three passages? Hmm? The apostles. Yeah, exactly, that's right. So he's talking about the apostles, the, the, the very ones that penned the New Testament. Uh, when it goes on to say in, in 2.7, the word that you've heard, that's what they're talking about. The word that you heard is what the apostles told them, the teaching of the apostles, which is recorded in the New Testament. Let me ask you about this. What, what's this in the beginning all about? In, in 1 John 1, it talks about what was from the beginning. In 1 John 2, it says, you had this commandment from the beginning. What do you think the beginning is they're talking about in that passage? Creation? One thought. Christ ministry? Yeah. I would submit to you in verse 1, where it says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. I believe it was from the moment when Christ came on the scene and the apostles saw him and touched him and spent time with him. 
when, when God called them to be apostles and when he, he, they saw and touched Jesus, the word of life. The beginning they're talking about is not Genesis 1.1, uh, although I, that would be the first thing I would think of. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I think they're talking about the beginning of Christ's ministry on earth and them being called to be his servants. So they're talking about, this is the stuff we want you to focus on. This is, in fact, later on in, in 4.6, he says, if you know God, you're going to listen to our teaching. You're going to listen to us. In fact, this, this is how you're going to know what's true and what's not true. You're going to compare it to what we teach you. Uh, if you remember before, I said 1 John 4.1 says we're going to test the spirits to see whether they're from God. Well, the litmus test uh, for testing the spirits to see whether they're from God is to run it through the, the prism of the apostles' teaching, through the New Testament. Where I'm going with this is to find the definition of what God calls us to do today, what his program is, we have to look at the New Testament because that is what we're taught. That is, that is what he's doing today in this age right now. Uh, I'm, I'm not suggesting by any means that the Old Testament is not valid or that it's not important. On the contrary, the Old Testament is critical. It's important. You need to understand it. Um, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10.11, now these things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. He says again in Romans 15:4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. Old Testament is very important. But what I'm saying is that because of the differences in the program of God that I outlined up here, and because of the teaching in the New Testament, the Christian does not look to the Old Testament for a proper definition of the ministry. Now, this concept has far-reaching implications uh, because there's a lot of confusion as to where we go to find out what we are called to do. Uh, and uh, So I'm going to stop there and come up for air and see if anybody has uh, any interaction they'd like to make. Yes? Um, not, just, not just specific to ministry, but um, as believers... In the New Testament age, can we claim all the promises that are given in the Old Testament? That's a great question. Um, so, <clears throat> I will tell you that God can speak to you uh, through his word. And there have been many times that I've been reading God's word and the, what I needed to hear came from the Old Testament and it happened to be where I was four or five days behind schedule in my reading through the Bible in a year and God just by providence had me get that word directly from him. Um, uh, I would say that, um, so I think it is possible that God can give you a promise. Um, but I, I would caution you not to uh, just grab every promise you see and just claim it for yourself, this whole name it and claim it concept. I don't, I don't know that that is, uh, I think that's a scary place to be. Um, I, 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 um, I'll give you an example. Um, my, um, my dad passed away three years ago from lung cancer. And uh, at the time, he was not a believer when, he was, when he, was, uh, he, he was diagnosed with cancer. And we found out, in fact, I was in Phoenix when I found out that it was, it was stage four and it spread all over his body. So uh, not the best trip. This has been a better trip than that trip was. But um, there were some folks uh, in our family that... Um, we're all about claiming promises, and they were just they they were they were convinced that God promised to heal him. Uh, you know, uh, one of the ones they always jumped to was this whole um, in Isaiah 53. You know, by 
by his wounds we are healed, you know. And that was their, that was their thing. And so they, were, they would tell him over and over and over again, you're going to be healed. You need to believe that. It's going to happen for sure. I have this promise. It's, it's mine. Um, and so what I try to explain to them is the context. You've got to look at the context of the passage. The context is talking about salvation. Right? We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the inequity of us all. Uh, it's talking about justi- God justifying us on the cross, right? Uh, that healing is, is, is salvation. Um, now, I'm not saying that that passage could not be about healing. I'm, I'm not trying to interpret or uh, go through that. But I will say, um, you better be sure. You better, you better know that God is speaking to you about that passage. Um, because it was really hard on my dad as he was trying to come to grips with his own uh, mortality. And is he going to die? Is he going to live? And the good news is after my little story about the E-squared panel, uh, when I came to Christ, the number one guy on my list was my dad. He was the number one guy. My dad was my best man in my wedding. I was very, very close to him. In fact, I'd come to Beulah Beach, which is our version of this retreat, uh, and just weep as I'd see other people come there with their dads and think, man, if my dad can be here and just soak in you know, who Jesus is and, and believe it. And um, uh, he, uh, I prayed and prayed and many, many times thought, there's no way... He's, he'd argue with me about the craziest things. There's no way God's going to save him. I just, I don't, and then I'd be like, idiot. My arm's not too short. That was another one that God gave me uh, to reach down and save. So um, he, uh, first, first day of chemo, he, he said, Todd, uh, I want you to know something. Uh, despite what everybody's telling me, I know I'm going to die, and I'm not afraid. And I said, wow, Dad, why is that? Well, I believe John 3.16 is true. And... Um, about a month later, he went home to be with the Lord. So that's an awesome thing. So that was uh, 13 years. He was on my top 10 list. And uh, it was awesome that I got to, I got to check him as uh, he got to go to heaven. So that would be my answer and um, a very long-winded answer to your very short question. So I apologize. Any other questions? Sure. This is... This has been on my mind uh, throughout the evangelism section and then your section. Uh, it just seems like a very common pushback when you try and share the gospel with a non-believer is the Old Testament. You know, um, I thought God was supposed to be love in the Old Testament. It's nothing but you know plagues and the raising of cities and you know killing hundreds of thousands of people. Mm-hmm. And you know, so obviously this is a, a very different you know. The two sections of the Bible are very different in their nature. And I just wondered if that's a common thing when you try and share the Gospels. Do you get this sort of pushback, and what's the best way to address that? Yeah, so um, that's a good question. And I have had people uh, talk to me about that issue. And, you know, the Gospel is in the Old Testament. It's all about the, it's all over the place. So, I mean, um, I think the, the problem is uh, that we try and define God in our own terms, and there are things that God does in the Old Testament that embarrass us. Like, there's no way that God would do that. That's not the God I, I believe in, you know. And the fact of the matter is, it's not the God you believe in, because the God you believe in you just made up. It's not the real God. So uh, we've got to be careful not to take our own morality standards and then use them to judge God and how he reveals himself. So uh, you can find a very compassionate way to share that with somebody. That's kind of the way that I try and, and talk through that. By the way, I just realized time is really getting away here. How much time do I have left? 
Oh, goodness gracious me. Okay. All right. All right, no more questions. Let's move on. All right. So let's, let's, get, to, let's get to the next piece, and that, and that is this. This is probably the, the, the most important part. So we'll, it really makes a lot of sense to set up and then jam in the most important part in the last two minutes. It's, it's all me. Okay, good. So um, a friend of mine uh, told me about uh, <clears throat> his brother-in-law that is in the Secret Service. In the Secret Service, they train you for two weeks on the U.S. currency. They spend all this time studying every detail of what every dollar looks like, every, every bill looks like, and they spend zero time studying the counterfeit. And the point is that when you know exactly what the currency looks like, the counterfeit will be very easy for you to see. And so it is not my intention to spend any time talking about what the, the ministry is not, but I want to focus on what the ministry is. And so the question is, where do we find the ministry? The answer, general answer is the New Testament. Uh, to, the specific answer is, is in Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. So while you guys turn there, that's where we're going to spend some time, Matthew 28, uh, 18 to 20. I want to make one statement while you guys are flipping the pages, and that is neither the individual nor the institutional church has the right to define the ministry. Only Jesus can do it, and he has done it. And I'm submitting to you that he has done it in Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And for the sake of time, let me just kind of get to it. So, um, Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Whenever you hear a command in Scripture, it is really important for you to consider who that command is intended for. Believe it or not, there are a lot of commands in Scripture that are not intended for you. An example, wives submit to your husband. We spend a lot of time talking about that. That command is not to you. That command is to your wife. Um, And so the first thing I try and do when I come across a command, especially a command like this, is who is this command for? To me, I see three possible options for this command. Option one those that were present with him when he was talking, the 11 disciples and any of their friends that happened to be standing there. That could have been who the command was given to. There were commands in the New Testament that he gave just to those people, uh, but not to us. Okay? Another option might be certain gifted believers, uh, evangelists, pastors, teachers. And a third option would be every believer. And so I want to walk through a couple things, a couple observations from this passage that uh, I think point towards one of those three. I'm sure you can kind of guess where I'm going. And the first is this. This is a big command. Uh, obviously, all commands of God are big. But I can't think of another command that Jesus gives, uh, or really that any of the apostles give in the New Testament, uh, that is prefaced with what I would call the God card. Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is mine. Everything that has been created, I have authority of. And based on that authority, do this thing. <laughs> that's, a, that's a big command. I mean, he... he, he in the Old Testament, there are times when uh, he says, I'm the Lord, you know, I'll do this because I'm the Lord. I mean, that's, that's important. I'm God. I'm, I have the authority to tell you to do this, but I don't know. For me, this is big. This is a very important command, uh, which makes me think that it may be for more than just the people that are there. Just a thought. Second, when a person is about to be with someone else for their last time, for instance, when they're on their deathbed, usually the last words they give are pretty important words. Uh, 
Jesus is about to uh, ascend back into heaven. And so this is one of the, the final things that he says to his disciples. Uh, the thought is he's, he's going to say something pretty important. The third, he sets a time limit on this command. Interesting. He says, Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. So he promises to be there to see that this command gets done, to see through it, uh, to re- so that they can rely on him. And if it goes to the end of the age, clearly it's going to go on longer than these disciples are going to be living, right? They're going to be dead and gone before the end of the age comes, right? In John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and he says, this is verse 20 and 21, he says, I do not, he's talking to God the Father, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Jesus is praying for his disciples who were there with him, but then he also prays for those who would believe in him through their word, us, right? And the reason he's praying for us is that we would be unified so that the whole rest of the world would believe in him through their word. Again, I believe that the emphasis is that uh, this command is to continue past these, these guys that are, that are there and, and listening. Matthew 10, 24 to 25 says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor is a slave above his master. It's enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. Jesus made disciples. His disciples are going to become like their master. Jesus said in Luke 19.10, The reason he came into the world was to seek and save that which is lost. If we're to become like our master, we are to do the same. This last one is my favorite. Um, When my son was eight, uh, I was teaching a a spiritual maturity class uh, at church, and he wanted to come to it. So I said, yeah, sure, you can come. And we started talking through the Great Commission. We started talking through this passage. And as we were talking... Uh, it said, teach them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And my son raised his hand. He said, so if he's supposed to teach them to obey everything that they've commanded you, wouldn't the command he was giving be included in the teaching everyone to obey everything he have commanded you? I mean, the, it sounds like this big command would be included in the commands that need to be taught. So teach them to make disciples. Go into disciples, teach them how to do that, you know, and I never saw that before. My, my eight-year-old pointed that out to me, and I thought, wow, that is, that is pretty heavy. That's pretty awesome, you know? Uh, so uh, I have to give credit where credit is due. Um, and then the last cross-reference is 2 Timothy 2.2, which um, Trevor mentioned uh, the other day. Uh, the emphasis is on a continuing process. The things you've heard in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be qualified to teach others also. Paul to Timothy. Timothy to faithful men. Faithful men who will be qualified to teach others also. There is a continuation. So my conclusion, and I'm going fast, is that this command is for every believer in Jesus Christ. There is, there is like a, an acronym or something. I can't think of what it is. Um, it's, it's just, I can't... Oh, yeah, right there. The, the E squared. So the, the E squared fathead poster, which is cool. And I told Trevor... I need to get this because I have to get rid of my Trent Richardson one anyway. So I like to get that one, slap that baby up on the wall in my, in my bedroom, and it just keep me focused, you know? So I'm not going to need that one anymore. <laughs> in this passage is E squared. It is right there. Uh, it says to uh, baptize him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. To baptize, first of all, they're going into all nations, people that had never heard about God before. In order to baptize someone, which is a proclamation of faith in Jesus, uh, you have to introduce them 
to faith in Jesus. So evangelism is built into uh, that passage. Um, so I'm, I'm going I'm to cruise on there unless you have any questions. The second part, teach to obey. So <clears throat> in Matthew 10, Jesus sends out his disciples. And he says, don't take a cloak with you. Don't take extra pair of sandals. Just go out there. And if they reject you, then kick off the dust off your shoes and move on. You know? And so he sends them out. And uh, they're doing the ministry. They're out there telling them to repent and the kingdom of God's at hand and all this cool stuff. He gives them the power to do all these cool things. And they come back, uh, and my guess is they were beat up. <laughs> they had some issues. They had some things they weren't able to accomplish. You know? And I would tell you that there is nothing like game experience to, uh, to learn, to, to be taught. And I think teaching to obey is not a classroom thing where I teach you how to obey by you taking notes and the things I'm saying. I believe that part of the making discipleship process is to walk somebody through the process, to teach them to obey, is to get them out there and do that. When I got discipled, the guy um, uh, asked me, didn't ask me, he told me, he said, listen, we're having this outreach luncheon, you need to invite somebody that's not a believer. He didn't say, I'll give you two for one, like you guys got going, that's a pretty cool deal. I didn't have that. So I asked the owner of my company, and talk about a very uncomfortable ride back home, and he was like, well, why did you ask me about this? What do you think I need? know? It didn't go real well, but I learned, you know, by doing the ministry. And then not that long thereafter, he said, we're going to go and we're going to call on people in their, uh, in their businesses. We're not going to announce ourselves. We're not going to let them know we're coming. We're gonna, these are people that checked the box, said that they prayed to receive Christ at this outreach lunch, and you're just going to come. And I'm like, wait, 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 wait. I do cold calling. I'm a salesperson. I have no problem with that. But I'm not going to go barge into somebody's office and start, hey, let's talk about Jesus. Like, I was like, whoa, talk about comfort zone overload, man. And he's like, no, we're doing this. You're doing it. You know, so two or three times in, he's like, okay, your turn. You get to do that. I mean, uh, there's nothing that makes you realize your need for Jesus more than the ministry, doing the ministry. That's how you're taught to obey. It's not notebook to notebook. It is, it is life to life, person to person, man to man. So, uh, again, I hate to, to rush through this, but the main point of my entire talk is this. The mission of the individual Christian is to introduce the lost to a relationship with Jesus Christ and to build up those who have Jesus as their Lord and Savior in their faith and knowledge of him. That is the clear definition of the ministry. This is defined in Matthew 20, 18 to 20, and is also correctly referred to as biblical ministry. Any activity outside this limited definition is at best not the ministry, and at worst, counterproductive to the cause of Christ. The goal of every relationship in life should be centered around this mission and focused on either introducing a person to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, evangelism, or building up their relationship with Jesus Christ, edification. Questions, concerns, thoughts? Could you read that again? The definition you have? Uh, sure. Slower or faster? I can go faster. I need to. <laughs> the mission of the individual Christian is to introduce the lost to a relationship with Jesus Christ and to build up those who have Jesus as their Lord and Savior in their faith and knowledge of him. This is interesting. I used to always say that E squared is evangelism and edification. It's funny. I don't think so. I think it's evangelism times edification. You know, it's a subtle difference, but I think about that. It says, uh, in, the, in the passage itself, it says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them. You're to baptize them, lead them to Christ, 
And then the same them, you're supposed to teach them to obey. So you're, it's, it's E squared. It's, it's, you're multiplying. It's a multiplication process. It's not an addition process. Um, so um, did you want the rest of those other statements or just, okay, got what you needed. Excellent. Anybody else? Questions? Sure, go ahead. Do you understand baptizing in that verse to be leading someone to Christ? I think baptizing is baptizing in that verse. But I, my, my, uh, my thought on that is, if you're going into all nations and, and, and uh, making disciples, in order to baptize someone, the Bible says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved. So um, I don't think you're just going around dunking people willy-nilly. I think you're, you're introducing them to a saving relationship with Jesus Christ and then baptizing them. Uh, baptism is a proclamation of what God has done in your life. Uh, from what the Old Testament teaches. And so uh, I believe that, I don't believe baptism is evangelism. I believe baptism is o- an act of obedience to a command. Jesus says, believe and be baptized. It's a command. So it's, it's, a, it's an act of obedience, but it's an act of obedience for a believer that um, recognizes Jesus as Lord and Savior. So that's, that's my thought on that. Yeah. Trevor, do, am I just gassed out of time or do I? <laughs> The wrath of Trevor is all over me. Bam! Yeah, I had a whole bunch of other uh, observations that I didn't get to, so um, that's the way it goes. Um, so, yeah, if, any other questions? Otherwise, I'm, I'm probably just going to shut it down here and pray. <clears throat> all right. Well, let me do that. I'm, I'm going to pray. And um, as I pray, I'm going to... I'm gonna, just going to pray right out of Psalm 90. So if you guys would bow your heads with me. Um, Lord, uh, thank you uh, for your love for us. Lord, your word says that the length of our days is 70 years or 80 if we have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger, for your wrath is as great as the fear that is due you. Teach us to number our days aright, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Lord, that is our cry, and that is my prayer, that you would teach us um, to number our days, to use it, uh, to fulfill the purpose that you have for us, to bring glory to your name, um, to be about your business. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.